Our text this morning is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing Upon it in our lives. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, Lord, we ask that you would reach us with your word, that you would remind us of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would call us to service to him, that you would fire our love for the Savior, kindle our faith, that we might seek after Jesus and find our rest in him. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is indeed a wonderful time of year, isn't it? It's a time of year in which our thoughts and focus can go to the Lord Jesus Christ as we think about His birth. But if we're honest with ourselves, 
there's also a good bit about this time of year that is unreal. Everyone puts on the best act they can to appear gracious and good and cheerful. Even the Christmas story itself takes on a bit of an unreal aspect. We picture Mary, who's just about to bring birth, riding comfortably on an animal to the place where she will stay. No woman who has ever been pregnant will say to you that the ninth month is comfortable. And then we imagine they stay at a place where the child is born and surrounded by animals that don't smell. And a baby that is born who does not cry. Everything is just picture perfect. It's like some kind of greeting card. This is the time of year in which we want to put on our, our best airs. But the reality of who Jesus is, is far more important. For you see, there is a reason why Jesus was born. Why he came to earth as a man. It was so that he would live a perfect life. It was so that he would die an atoning death. And rise from the grave and ascend to heaven. To rule over His people. And this morning, Luke points to us the reality around Jesus. First, I'd like us to see the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Secondly, I'd like us to see the reality of Jesus' message. And then thirdly, I'd like us to see the reality of Jesus' rule. It's the reality of Jesus in His resurrection, His message. And his rule. Let's begin then by looking at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection becomes real as he comes to his people. Now you have to put yourself in the place of the disciples at this time. Remember their state and their state of mind. This has been probably the most emotional weekend of their lives. It has been a complete roller coaster of ups and downs. Wondering what will happen in the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sadness that would come as they saw him hang upon a cross. The hopelessness that would come with thinking that the Messiah and the kingdom were gone forever. And then the reports that would come in from seemingly frantic women that the tomb was empty. And then as they gathered together here in this room, as Peter recounts that he's seen the Lord Jesus, and as two other disciples come in from Emmaus and say, we had dinner with him. You can imagine how emotional they are, but also how confused they must be. You see, now what they are hearing is directly contradictory to what they've seen with their own eyes What they know is real in the world. Because in the real world, people don't come back from the dead. They may in dream sequences. They may in fiction. They may in our desires. But in the real world, people don't come back from the dead. But now, they have another view. They have a view of Jesus. The other thing that I don't think that we can forget about the disciples as they're gathered together is now that they are afraid. 
John gives us a little detail in chapter 20 and verse 19 of his gospel. He tells us that all the disciples were gathered together and they had the door shut and locked. John tells us they did this because they were afraid of the Jews. And you can understand why. If one of your companions, one of your co-workers, had just been dragged off and arrested by the FBI or the police, you might be concerned you might be next. Especially if you had worked very closely on a project with him for several years. Especially if you voiced the same opinions as him. But you see here, this is just more of God's providence ensuring us to see the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Because no one can say that Jesus snuck into the room. You see, they're doing the best that they can to keep everyone out. I imagine in my mind's eye that they've shut the door, locked the door, put the bar over it, put a chair up against it, and slid a couch near it. They don't want anyone coming in and dragging them off to their deaths. And yet all of a sudden, Jesus breaks in. Unannounced. With no warning. With no preparation. Even uninvited. This, I think, helps us to understand the true nature of who Jesus is. You see, because far too often, we think... We need to invite Jesus into our lives. Jesus needs no invitation. He is the king. We don't need to sweep our homes clean. We don't need to prepare ourselves to meet with Jesus. It's not as if the world is some kind of cosmic advent calendar, which every day you flip up one of the windows so you know exactly when you can be ready. No, Jesus just breaks in unannounced into our lives. That's how he is. We often speak as if Jesus needs our permission to work in our lives. Perhaps you've heard this phrase. You know, the Lord Jesus is a gentleman. He won't come into your life unless you invite him in. That's a lie. You see, Jesus goes where he wills. You don't need to clean up your act. You don't need to be ready for Jesus. You simply need to recognize him when he's there. Is Jesus at work in your life right now? Perhaps you're experiencing hardship or sickness or loss or sadness. And you think that Jesus is as far away as he could possibly be. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to us in unexpected times to comfort us, to stir us up, to push us on to love And to good deeds. Because you see, that's the reality of the gospel. The gospel is that we are lost. And more than that, that we're at a loss as to what to do. We're lost and we don't know where we're going. And what we need is rescuing. And so Jesus comes to us. And he is the one who is able. He is the one who knows what we need. Jesus appears in the midst of his disciples because he knows they need him. And all of the locks and doors in the world can't keep Jesus out. You see, Jesus comes to his people with a purpose. And that purpose is to reassure them. Now, 
Do you notice what Luke recounts for us? Do you see what the very first word is that Jesus says to his disciples when they're all gathered together? It's peace. Now, does that strike you as a bit remarkable? If it doesn't, then let me remind you what you would have probably said in this situation and what surely I think I would have said. You burst in and you say, you know, y'all really disappoint me. You couldn't even stay awake in the garden. Couldn't you? Just for a few hours. Oh, and by the way, where were you all on Calvary? Didn't see you there. And how come you didn't believe what I told you? How come you didn't remember that I would rise from the dead? You see, if Jesus were like us, we would expect rebuke, recrimination, correction. That's how we act, don't we? Every child, grown or young, dreads those words from their parents. I told you so, right? We think sometimes our parents delight in finding an opportunity to use those words. But not Jesus. Jesus comes... And he speaks peace. And it's a reminder to us, not only of who Jesus is, but of who we are. You see, we are the ones who have fallen away. We are the ones who have broken the promises. We are the ones who have turned our backs on God. But Jesus remains faithful. He will not be kept at bay by our sin. Jesus is fulfilling here the first pronouncement. Do you recall it from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke? Surely you do at this time of year. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Jesus has bring in full circle that announcement from the heavens. He has brought peace and He is announcing peace. To his disciples. Because this, brothers and sisters, is what we need. We need peace in our hearts. We need peace with God. We need peace with each other. And not in a sappy, hallmark movie kind of way. But in a way of reality. In a way in which we understand that even when things aren't perfect, even when we feel hurt and loss in our lives, we can know peace. Because of what Jesus has done. And so as Jesus comes into their midst, they are understandably surprised and shocked. They are not expecting this. They are absolutely terrified. Luke tells us that they are startled and frightened. And the words there are very vivid. It's actually interesting because you see, they think Jesus is a spirit. They think Jesus at first may be a ghost. And I sort of imagine along those same themes, they are so frightened, it would be as if someone came up to you and when you weren't expecting it, screamed, Boo! Some of you flinched right now. But you know what happens, especially if it comes out of the dark or from a direction where you're not expecting it. What happens? Your heart starts beating like crazy. Your pulse rises. You start to maybe even sweat a little bit. You can't control yourself. 
That's what's happening to the disciples here. They're so shocked by what's going on. They're still trying to put together all of the pieces of the things that they have heard. And Jesus again comes to them with gentle instruction. He says, don't let doubt creep back into your life. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? You see, this is a struggle, isn't it, for you and me? Not that I expect that throughout the week you have people coming and shouting boo at you. But I think we have the equivalent of that, don't we? We want to trust Jesus, and then we wonder why things at our job are so miserable. We want to trust Jesus, and we wonder why our family life can't be perfect. We want to trust Jesus, but we can't really explain the trust we have in Christ to our neighbors and co-workers who mock us. You see, doubts can creep back into our minds. That's what Satan wants. But what Jesus does is he reassures his disciples and us, and he does it in such a practical way. Look at what he does. He knows exactly what they are troubled by, and he says, See, look at me. See my hands and my feet. It's really me. Touch me and see. And the word there for touch means more than just poke with a finger. It means grab my arm. Grab me by the shoulders and shake me a bit and and tell that I'm real and I have substance. Look, it really is me. I have flesh. I have bones. And this begins then to show the reality of what Jesus has done. He's not some shadow or some spirit. He truly is risen from the grave with a real body. The work is done. It is finished, even as he has declared. And so as the disciples look at him, they can be assured in their faith, knowing that Jesus has truly conquered death. This gives us great hope for ourselves too, isn't it? Because if Jesus' spiritual resurrected body is real, then we can expect that our resurrected bodies will be real. We will have substance. We will walk. We will eat. Now, I don't know what heavenly barbecue will taste like. But on some level, I'm glad to know that I'm going to get to eat. Not because I have to to sustain life or I would die but because of the good pleasure that God gives to us in that. You see, in seeing Jesus, we can understand even more about ourselves and what He has purchased for us. But it also brings to mind to the disciples and to us the reality of what Jesus has done. As He says, look at my hands and my feet. Now, what would be there? The scars... The sign that Jesus had completed the work of redemption. Have you ever contemplated the fact that in all eternity, as all of God's people gather around to worship Him in glorified bodies without sin, that for all eternity, Jesus' body will be the only one with scars. And those scars will remind us for all eternity of the price He paid that we might be in communion with God. What a wonderful reminder of the graciousness, of the selflessness, of the gift of Jesus. 
You see, this is real. It's as real as Jesus looking at Peter and saying, do you have a piece of fish? I'm going to eat with you all. He wants them to be assured that everything is exactly as it should be. And then when Jesus has assured them that he is really there, he begins to bring to them a message. The reality of the message that they will bring to the world in days to come. That message is one of forgiveness and repentance, of grace and the gospel. Now it's interesting that this message of forgiveness is not a new message. Look at verse 44. Jesus, like every good speaker, tells them what he's going to say, and then he says it, and then he tells them what he said. He wants it to be clear. And he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. You see, Jesus is reminding them that he has already taught them these things. The resurrection didn't change his message. It merely fulfilled it. The resurrection is the purpose of the incarnation. This is what Jesus has been telling them all along. And he begins then to open up the scriptures in a biblical, Christ-centered, evangelical, mission-oriented way. He begins with the law of Moses. And he moves to the prophets and then to the Psalms. And what you have to understand is that threefold division of the Old Testament is used to describe the whole of the Bible. It's not just certain parts. That includes all of the scriptures that they would have. And after all, don't the scriptures speak of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Don't they speak of the reality of his work? In the law of Moses, Exodus chapter 3, we read, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Luke reminds us that that was told to tell us that there is a resurrection because God is the God of the living and not the dead. And he is presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Peter will take this out as he preaches the glories of the gospel. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus and raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The prophets spoke of his resurrection. Hosea says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. This is, of course, What the Apostle Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The psalmist reminds us that Jesus would not stay in the grave, that the Lord would not leave him to corruption. He would not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter understood this as well as he preached this to the standing thousands. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see, this is a message of forgiveness found in the work of Jesus. But there's also a message of repentance as well. 
For you see, we must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot take what is Jesus's and hold on to what is our own. We cannot claim we live for Jesus and keep living for ourselves. And so Jesus tells us to take a message of repentance to ourselves and to others. And what does repentance mean? I think it means at least three basic things. First, turning away from sin. Second, turning toward God. And then third, forsaking our sin and not going back. This is what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, the message that Jesus brings to you that is real is that you can find forgiveness for your sins. You can have and know repentance by faith in Christ. Now, finding forgiveness does not mean that we instantly become perfect. It doesn't mean that we sin no longer. Perhaps some of you had this experience when you first came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you were sure that was going to fix everything. And everything would be just perfect from this point on. You would never, ever fight with your spouse again, ever. Your children would behave masterfully, and there would be harmony in your home 24 hours a day. You would never have problems at work or problems with your finances. You would always know the right thing to say. You would be patient beyond all endurance. And then, usually the next day, reality sets in. When we realize we are changed, but there still is a good deal that we need to jettison. Old habits die hard. Old sins need to be put to death. And we need to follow consciously, step by step, after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not as if a magic wand is waved and everything is magically Christmas snowtime perfect. Now, real life is a lot harder, isn't it? The message of repentance and of forgiveness is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and following after Him. It means we do find mercy. It means that God pardons us for our sins. And it means that God forgets. He truly forgets our sins. God is not like those of us who in the midst of an argument bring up what the other person did five years ago. Oh, but by the way, you remember that time? God doesn't do that. What a refreshing and comforting verse in the scriptures. That as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We find true and real forgiveness in Christ. And this spurs us on to know that the reality of the message is not just for us, but it is for others as well. Because Jesus says this message of repentance and forgiveness is something that is to be proclaimed, to be brought to all of the world, to all of the nations. It is not something to be held closely to the vest. 
We do not seek to be some kind of elite group of believers. We seek to be indiscriminate with the message of the gospel, to bring it to all the corners of the world, to make sure that every person has heard the good news that Jesus saves. This is the reality of Jesus' message. It is not just for you. You are a holder. You are an ambassador of this message. It is for you to inculcate your children with, to tell your neighbors about, to encourage your co-workers with. It is a message of hope and forgiveness and joy. We are to be His witnesses, Jesus says. Beginning in Jerusalem, but it does not stop there. You recall that in Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, he describes how they are to begin first in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is the message that we bring to all of the world. We're to be witnesses of God's word. We are to be witnesses of Jesus' work. We are to be witnesses of the difference Jesus has made in our lives. And sometimes that's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes we don't want to be a witness. Sometimes it seems awkward. Sometimes it brings pain and we can be hurt. But be encouraged. Jesus knew this. There's a very interesting little fact hidden here in the English. Do you know what the word for witness is in Greek? It's martyr. You know like somebody getting their head cut off? Martyr? You see, Jesus knew that witnessing for him would bring pain and difficulty. And He promised to be there with us. He promised to empower us by the power of His Spirit. And this is why Jesus makes this promise. He says, don't leave until you get the power that comes from Me. You are to go throughout all the world, but wait for Me. Because I'm going to equip you. And I know you're going to be scared. And I know you're going to get tired. And I know it's going to be hard. But that's why I'm going to give you the promise of the Father. I'm going to give you My Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus provides for us to be His witnesses. And this is not just some kind of spectacle. This is the gospel itself. The power of the gospel is found. That's why Paul can tell the Thessalonians that his gospel came to them not only in word, but also in power. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. You see, as you are the witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the power from Jesus to testify to what He has done. When others want to coochie-coochie-coo the cute baby in the manger, you have an opportunity to tell them of the glories of Jesus, of the miraculous incarnation, how the one who put into existence all of the stars became a baby, helpless. And how that child grew and lived a perfect life, never sinning in thought, in word, or in deed. 
And although he was perfectly innocent, he went voluntarily to a death he did not deserve, that others might find forgiveness, that his people might be gathered to himself. This is the meaning of Jesus. It's the reality of his message. Thirdly and finally, at the close of this gospel, we see the reality of Jesus' rule. We see it beginning in verse 50. Now, Luke is writing, as you will recall, with a purpose. Do you remember what his purpose is? He told us at the very beginning, his purpose was to write to us so that we would be more certain about the things that we had been taught. So that we would know the truth of the gospel. And so, he's using a technique here at the end of his gospel. He's compacting things. It's almost as if he can't wait to get to the ascension. Because in that little word, then, 40 days go by. We know this from the other gospel writers. That Jesus was with the disciples at varying times and places for 40 days. But Luke doesn't want to talk about the 40 days. He wants to go rush right to the ascension. Now why is that? Have you ever noticed that the ascension does not get much press in the church? Christmas is a really big deal, isn't it? Easter is a really big deal. Nobody makes a really big deal about the ascension. Except Luke. He can't wait to get there. Because you see, what's going on here in the ascension is Jesus has fulfilled His work. He has come and lived. He has died and is risen. And He has now prepared His disciples to take the gospel message. And so here we have Jesus ascending on high in His glory. Now, you need to get out of your mind that the ascension is some kind of NASA anti-gravity trick. That Jesus somehow floats up in the air with His robes flowing. The ascension is not primarily about the physical place where Jesus is. That He goes up and we stay down. What the ascension is about is the Rule of Jesus beginning. He is not going to hang out in the clouds. He is going to be at the right hand of the Father with all power and glory. And so the disciples lose sight of him as he goes. Because the Shekinah glory, the glory only of God, surrounds him and blinds them and he's gone. He has gone to his place of glory. They understand this. Because look at how they react. What do they do immediately? They begin to worship Him, don't they? They've seen the glory of God. They know that Jesus is God Himself. They know that He is going to rule and they worship Him. You see, Jesus is the one who has all power and authority. He deserves it because of who He is. Because of what he has done. But the ascension doesn't just give us a window into Jesus' glory. It also gives us a window into the benefits that come to us from the ascension. The ascension actually says a lot about Christmas. Because you see, have you ever thought about the fact that the incarnation is permanent? That Jesus wasn't God who became man and then went back to being God again. 
Jesus right now, in the flesh, sits at the right hand of God the Father on the throne. I don't know exactly what that means. But I can tell you this. I'm glad for it. Because you see, the incarnation is not just about God coming to be with us. The incarnation is about us being able to go to be with God in our flesh. Do you see the wonder of the incarnation? How God becomes man and bridges the gap that we might dwell forever in glory with the Lord our Savior. And Jesus sits at that right hand of God interceding for us continually. So much so that Paul tells us we don't have to worry about condemnation because Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession. This is how He rules over us for our benefit. He intercedes on our behalf. And He brings and gives gifts to us. He fulfills the prophecy of the Psalms that said that as He ascended, He gave gifts. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. You see, Jesus rules in such a way that we are benefited. He fulfills all of His promises. He sends His Spirit that we might be empowered. And it's interesting. Do you notice how Luke's Gospel ends? Or rather, I should say, where it ends. It ends in the temple of God. Where did the Gospel begin? Where did the Christmas story begin? but in the temple of God. Isn't that true? It was announced, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at His birth. And do you remember the angel crying out, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. They're now in the temple and what are they experiencing? (coughs) That great joy, that great joy that was prophesied. Christmas has come full circle. Jesus has fulfilled the reason for His coming. And the world will never be the same. That is what we celebrate. We do not celebrate a time to be good. We do not celebrate a time to give to others. We celebrate a time in which the Lord Jesus Christ broke into the world and changed its trajectory forever such that we who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ could experience great joy. That joy should be in your life right now. That joy should be in your life on December 26th and on January 11th and on March 18th. And on June 4th, because it is a joy that comes from knowing the reality that Jesus reigns. That Jesus has brought a message of forgiveness and that Jesus is resurrected from the dead and that is our great hope. It's a joy that no one and no calendar can ever 
take away from you. Praise be to God for the work of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great and wonderful account of the end of the Gospel of Luke. How we can be encouraged in knowing that Jesus is truly real and that he makes a difference in our lives. Lord, we ask this morning that you would draw us ever closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would honor and adore him. That we would serve and love him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.